Welcome to the Shambhala Sunday Gatherings podcast. Each week, we invite a guest presenter from the Shambhala community to talk about what is meaningful to them or to share a brief Dharma talk. These explorations range from the reality of impermanence, death, and the unknown to how we express and work with joy, contentment, and fearlessness in our daily lives. Presenters offer a guided meditation or contemplation practice and invite reflections, comments, and questions from participants about the poignancy and complexity of our shared journey on planet Earth. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. Welcome to this Shambhala Sunday Gathering with Elaine. Uh, thank you, Elaine, for being here. My name is Nina Miliari. I am part of Shambhala Global Services team and Sunday Gatherings team. I'm your host for today's presentation. And uh, we have here today, we have Elaine Yuen presenting on what's like to be Asian in the Shambhala community. Thank you, Elaine, for being here. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Sunday gatherings, every week we have a guest presenting, um, talking about something that's meaningful for them, um, something about Dharma. So, oh, more people coming in. <laughs> and, uh, and this week we have Elaine with us. At this point, I just would like to introduce Elaine and, um, and welcome you officially. So Elaine Yuen is an educator, chaplain, and researcher, most recently a professor at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, where she taught courses on pastoral caregiving, chaplaincy, contemplative education, and Buddhist studies. She's a senior teacher and Buddhist minister within the Shambhala community. She has taught widely exploring the interfaces between Buddhism, meditation, creativity, and contemplating caregiving. Elaine has returned to Philadelphia and continues to be deeply interested in how we shape our social interaction with caring and authentic presence. Her website on contemplative chaplaincy can be found at elaineun.com and I will post the link to the chat box so you can all access and let's welcome another participant. <laughs> so uh, at this point, I'd like to turn over for, uh, to you, Elaine, and thank you so much for being here with us today and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so welcome, Elaine, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Nina. Thank you so much. Um, it's great to see everybody. I'm seeing so many people that I know, some people I know, some people I don't know. Um, um, thanks for showing up. Yeah. So um, I'm, a, I'm, as some of you might know, I'm a little intimidated by even talking about this topic, but um, I wanted to first say what my intention of even exploring this topic is because um, I feel it's an open question of what's it like to be, in my case, Asian American in Shambhala, but what's it like for any of us? Um, so part of my intention is um, whenever we had um, 
persons of color group, either in Shambhala or at my various employment sites, um, I was always in the people of color group. And that actually had a lot of different kinds of persons of color in it. But the dialogue around people of color has been actually primarily dominated by um, sort of injustice, and rightly so, I'm not putting this down or anything, but around um, black versus white um, injustice. And that certainly has to happen. But um, this conversation, which began as an internal conversation that I'm having, that I had with myself over the last year, especially after so much violence against Asian Americans has happened, um, um, is sort of meant to be an interrogation of my own sensibilities about how can I be an ally to um, racial justice in general. So I want to begin this presentation by saying the experiences I'm going to talk about are highly personal. Um, I spent the last year being part of a internalized depression group with all Asian Americans. And I have to say, I'm, I'm um, of the grandmotherly age of that group. <laughs> so, so I'm, um, so I, I want to make clear that I have, you know, there's generational differences, age differences. There's many other differences that go into our sensibility of who we are and how we show up. But I think the main issue is that we all long to be seen. We all long to be seen and heard and understood. So that's a yearning um, that we all have. And it's been heightened at this time of the pandemic, of course, um, where we're somewhat isolated. Um, I want to start off by saying some of you might know this history. Um, or some might not in terms of Asian Americans. First of all, there's like at least 17 to 20 different kinds of ethnicities, language, food that goes into what is Asian in America because America has so many different kinds of um, immigrants that um, there, it's actually been a little hard, except for the last year, to sort of have a group coalesce around what is Asian American and how can we stand in solidarity, actually. Um, but I do want to mention historically Asians have been um, always seen as somewhat as other. So that has, um, as many of you may know, in um, in the mid-1800s, many Asians, Japanese and Chinese primarily, came and worked on the railroads. My grandfather was one of them. And um, th they were not recognized. And as a result, in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed that forbade any, um, forbade any immigration by um, Chinese, specifically unless you were born here. And that's actually the beginning of the rule, you know, if you were born in the United States, you can, you're a United States citizen. That is when that kind of rule began. It was with the Chinese, not with any other ethnicity. Um, and that um, act um, sort of stayed in place until the mid 1960s, actually, when Lyndon Johnson passed, you know, the Great Society. He opened up many things. 
Um, and um, people like my parents, um, who were American citizens, um, served in World War II and um, things like that very loyally. Um, in 1952, it became legal for ethnicities to intermarry. So um, before that, it was against the law for um, like certainly black versus white. That was loving versus the United States. Um, but um, it, it was against the law to intermarry. So um, since the mid 60s, there's been a lot of um, so immigration opened up and there's been a lot of uh, immigration from Asians to this country right now. They represent about 6% of our population, but it's also um, the fastest growing um, ethnic group, if you can say that, <laughs> in the United States who immigrate here. Um, and it includes sort of many different kinds of Asians, South Asians from India, East Asians from China, Japan, Taiwan. Um, so there's uh, Tibetans, certainly. So there's a lot of Asian, um, there's a lot going on in terms of um, who is an Asian in this country and those um, generational differences stand. So I'm kind of from a different generation. The, many of the younger Asians that I met who are um, finding their way in this country now have a completely different experience of being Asian than I did. Um, so I'm gonna talk just briefly about my experience of being Asian. Um, I grew up, as many of you might know, in Washington, DC, where there's not a lot of, at that time, there weren't a lot of Asians. It wasn't like California. So um, I'm between second and third generation Asian, Chinese. My parents were very loyal to this country. They were civil servants in the United States and somewhat mirroring uh, immigrant experience of overperforming, <laughs> wanting to be as American as anyone else. So I have a very American name, Elaine. I also have a Chinese name, which is Hongyin, which is um, red rainbow swallow. Um, so, you can say my Asian-ness growing up was somewhat of a token quality. I was often the only Asian in the room in my high school. And frankly, I find that quality still in um, our Buddhist communities, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, of being a, the token Asian, although I see a few um, of my Asian friends and colleagues here, even on this call, but we're not you know, um, there's a lot of variety in terms of any, uh, any ethnicity. So, you know, you just like you uh, sometimes as the token, you're asked to represent the whole group of people, which is, I mean, you're not asked verbally, but you think people think you're representing like all Asians, which anyway, which is crazy. Um, so, um, Growing up, I have to say there was a real fluidity of context of how Asian I was. Um, I grew up in a Chinese community bilingual church on the East Coast, um, which was, you know, there was an insular quality to that. Um, 
I want to say when I met Chogyam Trungpa, I met him in um, 1971, which was at that time Tale of the Tiger. So I was a, um, a hippie like many of the people in my generation. And um, I was in my first conversation with him, which was barely a conversation because I was completely awestruck by his presence, but he started making conversation with me and he said, you're kind of tall for a Chinese person. <laughs> and so I'm tall, I'm 5'9". Um, and he also encouraged me to uh, learn Chinese, which I never did, but I did explore my Chineseness when I went on sabbatical. Um, a couple years ago, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to say, in terms of Shambhala, as is many um, uh, Western, what I consider first-generation Western groups, um, the the Buddha Dharma has has come in mainly through the white middle class in in our society, and that's not just about Shambhala. It's you know, it's across the board. And um, many times it was brought by uh, a charismatic, often, often charismatic um, teacher or leader from Asia. But many of the teachings were um, entrusted to students who were um, white and Actually, um, my friend Chen Xing Han, who is in her late 20s, has observed this. And um, there's a whole dialogue about, well, what about the Asian Americans um, in these white, um, mainly white Buddhist communities? Um, there's not a lot of um, just acknowledgement of, of that being. The, there, actually. I mean, I, I feel by my white adjacency, <laughs> I did a lot of research on this, by my white adjacency, because I'm, you know, my socioeconomic status is reasonable, you know, I, I'm educated, I have a house to live in, things like that. Um, so in terms of other minority groups, um, I share some of the privileges that white people share. So that is called white adjacent, but there is also a um, some things that I don't share with them. So, um, and, and now it's actually, there's lawsuits, in case any of you guys are following the news, there's lawsuits against um, schools like Harvard and the New York school system, but there's too many Asians in their school. So that's a different kind of othering. It's, it's a different kind of othering of Asians. And I feel we're navigating a lot of stereotypes about Asians. So um, um, in my work with diversity, there's kind of um, the principle of of a stereotype versus a social definition of a group. 
<laughs> so you can say, like I've been watching the Olympics, you can say, well, there's a lot of Asian ice skaters out there representing all the different countries, actually. And you can say the purport, there's a high proportion of Asians out there. And that's just some kind of sociological fact. But then once you, but a stereotype is when you take that artifact, that number, and you say, well, it must be that, you know, then you make assumptions around what are the characteristics of those people and things like that. So, um, so equally, you could say in terms of, um, of our Buddhist communities, there's not that many Asians and there's not that much voice of Asian identities. And, and there actually hasn't been that much curiosity about Asians because um, I, I personally feel, and this is my personal feeling, that because Buddhism came from Asia, there's a conflation of what it's like to be Asian American versus what it's like to have to be practicing in a religion that came from an Asian country. And I just feel, I mean, to me that's a question. I'm not I, I'm not here to tell anybody how to think or anything like that, but this is kind of my journey with this that there's some kind of conflation and um and we do have um our in shambhala many of our um our well my main teacher was chirgyam trungpa he was a tibet tibetan <laughs> from asia and he certainly taught a lot of people many of the senior teachers in our community and um, you know and i'm one and i recognize that there's some others even on this call, who are senior teachers are Asian. So I don't feel it's particularly an artifact around um, positionality, but it, I do feel it's an artifact around how do I live and how do I understand the Dharma and how do I practice within myself things. That's kind of where I'm ending up with this. and. Um, how do I identify myself within this mainly white milieu of of um, being not white, not black? <laughs> like, and Naropa was like, Black Lives Matter, and I I agree completely. But I'm not. So I I was like, I didn't know how to deal with it actually. The um, and one of my half black friends, colleagues said, well, don't worry, Elaine, you don't have to worry about that. But, um, but it is, you know, a question of, to me, of how to be an ally in these situations. And certainly with the um, violence against Asians in the last year, I can see there's a similarity of stereotyping um, people who look a certain way. So in terms of stereotyping my face, my Asian face, um, and I feel that solidarity with all the Asians who have been um, harmed in the last year, um, it's that people see this look, this face, and they make certain assumptions about it. So we may make assumptions that, oh, that's a wise monk from... <laughs> Um, Bhutan or something, or we might make us 
stereotypical assumption that, oh, that's an exotic person from a far off land, or it's an exotic female. <clears throat> Asian females have been very exoticized. It's an exotic um, woman who knows different, I don't know, things around sexual positions or something like that. Or we might make an assumption that, oh, they're here to take all our money because they're um, buying up all the land in Manhattan. So we, just from this face, we make an assumption about that, that they're other. And of course, it didn't help that our previous president sort of, you know, propagated that, you know, they're spreading the coronavirus or they're sneaky. They're quiet and sneaky and you never know what's going on with them, really. Um, there's all these kind of subtexts of stereotypes that come up with just looking Asian, looking Asian. And I feel that that has been exacerbated in the last year. And it's kind of our, the Asian version of driving while black. So, you know, um, African-American, um, especially men are educated to be very careful when they're driving and they're stopped by police because that same operation of stereotyping comes into play um, as, you know, as you just, you know, make assumptions and everything like that. Um, so, I've done a lot of um, self-reflection on how to identify myself and, and then how do others, and then the second question is how do others identify me? And I can't answer that other question, but I know that, um, you know, we're certainly part of a certain ethnic group. We're certainly a certain identified gender, cisgender or whatever it is, transgender. Um, and with that, we have different kinds of communication practices and languages. Um, I think um, Asians, and I, I would actually extend this to other different, like Latinx, um, are very collective. So there's a certain way of communication that's very collective, not so individualistic. So there's sort of that simpatico that you're always looking for. Um, um, and even conceptually in my academic work, I'm always looking for simpatico, even when I'm, you know, writing a paper or something like that. Not so much that I've got something to say, you know, not so much the individualistic um, outlook of that's, that's really been part of um, Western culture, very individualistic perspective. Um, <clears throat> so communication is a big thing, and I think that's something that to really <clears throat> think about, not just how we communicate with each other, but also how do I communicate with myself about who I am? And um, there's often, you know, do I need to just stand for myself, or do I, or am I kind of thinking about how do I uh, communicate with my friends in, like, I see a number of my friends in Philadelphia, so now I'm a Philadelphian as well as an Asian, you know, 
um, <laughs> or an East Coastian, as well as not a Boulder Rodian. Um, so there's many ways, parts of identity that includes um, a sense of um, space, the space that I occupy, and how how closely I want to um, be in that space with each other. So I want to say as an Asian, um, I had to learn how to hug people because my parents never hugged me. <laughs> it wasn't a thing actually to hug. I don't know if I don't know if that's just my family, but um, you know, there's something about sort of being just um, not very touchy feely. Um, there's also the stereotype of. Uh, of um, work contexts and habits. So there's different stereotypes around Asians that they're good at math or something like that. <laughs> or they're hardworking or they're like, they have tiger moms and they all kind of overperform. And I have to admit, I we did try to overperform growing up, but you know, that's not the, Anyway, the, I'm just bringing out all the stereotypes that you might have about Asians, and um, and um, and sometimes that stereotype might be threatening. I guess you know, like they're over, like like it turns out that the statistic is that the the mean incomes of um, South Asians, of all the Asians, the South Asians are doing the best. Um, economically. So that's a stereotype. You know, I mean, that's also a fact, but that's also a stereotype. If you're a South Asian, you know, Indian sort of um, person, very, very passion, passionate about their work. Um, so there's just a lot of ways to, um, that I'm identified myself as Asian, that I tell these narratives within myself, and also this the way that I navigate this narrative story making with others. So um, that's kind of the second part of how what I want to talk about is how do we create society? Because uh, okay, in Shambhala we're trying to create society, right? So it's about how do I navigate this kind of inner dialogue that I might have about who I am and what I am with with the others, with not only other people, but the social context that I find myself in. Um, so I, I don't think it's any um, mystery. I moved back from Colorado, which is actually Colorado's kind of a majority white society. <laughs> I mean, Boulder is really nice, and I know there's a few people from Boulder on the call, and I, I still have Zoom calls with many of you, actually. Um, but there's not a lot of, um, when I was in Boulder, I didn't find a lot of um, ethnic variation there, and actually you were often the token of an ethnicity. So my in my classes that I taught the African Americans, they were like the token African Americans that everybody well let's what's it like to and then you felt you had to be the spokesperson for for that 
Um, and then returning to Philadelphia, I actually um, felt a little bit relief that on the East Coast, there's many, so I can walk into the local gas station, the Wawa, which sells sandwiches and donuts and um, as well as gas and just encounter like, so many different kinds of African American, and that made me so happy <laughs> that that it just wasn't just one kind of um, ethnic. You know, there wasn't there was just so many different kinds of not only African Americans but Asians, Latinos, everything. That um, that there's tremendous diversity within our diversity, and so. Um, so navigating the diversity within navigating those two situations, um, and I want to say one's not better than the other necessarily, but navigating different situations, different different cultural situations, um, you realize that culture this culture, which is not just my culture and your culture, but culture being the space that we hold between us and how we communicate with each other. That's our Shambhala, you know, when we say, you know, in the Shambhala sadhana, society is basically good. Well, I'm interrogating that. I'm, I mean, I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm curious to know what that means. And so to me, it, it, manifest as how we um, communicate with each other, not just through words and concepts, but through our felt senses, which um, I really feel is important for us to pay attention to. So, you know, in some of our meditations, we actually ask, like, what's the felt sense, which includes your body language, of course, but sort of your emotional comfort within yourself. And within that emotional um, comfort, how fluid or not is the um, communication flowing? So communication including the words as well as the emotions. How, how, how does that flow? And so how does it flow when we put different cultures together? You know, that we need to acknowledge different cultures at different times together. Um, so I, I really feel that in this sense, our cultural interactions are constantly being renegotiated. So when I'm in Boulder, I negotiate myself <laughs> and, and not in a bad way. I'm not saying negotiation is like a lawyer or something like that, but I, I appear as in a certain way, you know, and yeah, part of me is Asian, part of me is like, um, yeah, actually one of my, my, my friends from Boston noticed that I was carrying around like all my uh, reusable silverware. That's a very bolder thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, or, or I always have like a recyclable uh, um, grocery bag or something like that. Um, so I, I renegotiate like who I am in that situation compared to being now in Philadelphia. I have a whole different way of, um, 
it's not completely different. Like the Sahyung said, it's like change isn't 180. It's like more like 10 degrees. You know, it's more like changing my sensibility, but it's a dialing of sensibility of who I am, maybe a little bit. And and so um, yeah, just appreciating differences. And and now I'm actually teaching a meditation class at. Um, LaSalle University, which is um, a liberal arts school in North Philadelphia, kind of in the middle of a not very good neighborhood in Philly, but all the, the kids are, you know, wanting to learn meditation and everything like that. So that part is actually great, but their whole motivation is different. Like they're not looking for the higher plane. They're just looking for stress reduction. And that's, kind of like, okay, I can help you do that. Um, so, so, um, so the communication is different. You know, there's part of it that's similar and then part of it that, that's the same. So I just want to say that culture is, um, and culture meaning not just my culture and your culture, but our, how we create these spheres of society they're, they're different. And I guess the main thing that we might want to infuse our, our collective culture with is a sense of curiosity and basic goodness. So to be curious about, you know, okay, what's it like to be Asian in Shambhala? You know, to be curious about that. Or what's it like to be, you know, um, white in Boulder? I don't know. Um, what is that? And to me, it's like a Zen koan or something, um, which, you know, um, those of you that know about Zen koans, it's like a classic one is like, does a dog have Buddha nature? And we're, you're like, oh, well, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. A dog doesn't. So it's like that. So what's it like to be Asian in Shambhala has that same koan quality for me. Um, it has many dimensions. It has some um, identification with some of our practices, our ancestral practices, like em Emperor Young Lo is, you know, is part of my ancestry. And I actually appreciate that. Um, and I do like to work with the confused phenomena of existence, which is those of you that know the Shambhala chant that he that is what he did that and the Chinese sensibility is one of empire actually. So it's one of bureaucracy for lack of a better word, of working with with many different um kind of dynamics. So you know I there's part of me that appreciates that. And um at the same time, does that make me different than others that do the Shambhala chants? I don't know. I don't know. I do know, I, I want to end up by saying, I, I do know that I went to, um, on my sabbatical a few years ago, I went to Asia. Some of you know about this. I went to um, um, India, where I was hosted by Zongsar Rinpoche's um, folks. <laughs> 
And then I went to Thailand and I was with some um, Sulaksi Maratha, who was a um, Thai sort of activist, actually Buddhist activist. And then I went to Taiwan and I was hosted by um, the um, sort of the Taiwanese Zen monasteries. And when I was there, I, um, I did develop an appreciation of my Asian-ness. I, I had never spent that much time in Asia. So going back to Rinpoche saying, we should learn Chinese. Well, I didn't exactly learn. I know a little Chinese and I could probably, um, if I stayed in Taiwan for a month, I'd probably be fine because I studied Chinese in, um, in college. But um, I did sort of come to appreciate my ancestry of being Chinese there. And um, they took me to some tomb sweeping festivals in April. That's when you traditionally sweep the um, graves of your ancestors. And uh, the nun said, even if you don't understand what is being said, and I, I didn't, I kind of understood the gesture of appreciating my ancestry. And my host, Jenker in um, Taiwan, at one point she said, you have Chinese blood. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean, that's something I continue to interrogate. I can say, well, yeah, I have Chinese blood and I have certain impulses. My heritage is Chinese and I like to do things in a Chinese way, whatever that is. Um, and I do like math, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, but, you know, I feel it's, it's actually at the end of the day, I feel in these discussions we have around race, ethnicity, and diversity, we need to include a felt sense of who we are. Because I feel that's what she was addressing in me when she said, you have Chinese blood. She was acknowledging a felt sense, not... Um, not something that I could list off um, as attributional or do a DNA test on or something like that. But it's something um, greater than that to acknowledge one's ancestry is greater than that. And um, I feel that very strongly actually in terms of our Shambhala community. I feel very connected to the teachings um, through, I'm, I'm not quite sure what, through a previous life, through being Chinese, I, I have no idea. But um, I feel that for each of us, individually and collectively, for us to be able to have genuine conversations and genuine acknowledgement of each other that it's necessary to acknowledge simply with yourself this um, your individual uh, power and ancestry that comes from that power as well as what we can offer to each other and it's not about the um, oppression Olympics or something like that, but it is about acknowledging differences um, 
as well as our collective similarity of basic goodness. So certainly on the uh, absolute level of the teachings, we all have basic goodness. Um, and I've worked with that for a very long time. But now, to me, what's interesting is on the relative level, how does our basic goodness manifest? And that manifestation is predicated by our deeply felt, um, I'm using the word ancestry, but I don't even feel it's that, you know, who we are and how we configure ourselves moment to moment. It's informed by that. And, and we know all those teachings from the Abhidharma that we, you know, arise differently moment to moment. But that arising is informed by, um, Many different things are karma, you know, which includes what family we were born into, how we were raised, and all that nature and nurture stuff that you might learn in sociology 101. Um, so I feel it's just important to have heads up about that, to in constantly um, um, interrogate that within ourselves, like what. What is, what is that? How am I genuinely showing up? So for me, it's been around how am I genuinely showing up as an Asian American um, at this time when Asian Americans are being, again, marginalized, um, maybe not so much in our community, but maybe in our community. Maybe it does happen, and I'm sure it does, actually not consciously, but, um, you know, unconscious bias is always there. So to be um, both smart and gentle about that is our tradition. It's our tradition not to lay down and let it roll over us, but also um, to hold up on the blame if we can, um, which seems to be um, difficult right now. So um, I know that I, I want to uh, acknowledge um, time for larger discussion, if, if people would like to have that. Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, hi, Herb. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Elaine. Great to see you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking uh, during your talk um, how much uh, what you were saying resonated with me as being Jewish, and uh, which um, most of the time I don't think about it, but I, I saw something on television on the internet the other day, a news story about um, some neo-Nazis uh, on the street showing up in a couple places in Africa, big city and, and yelling all these kind of anti-Semitic things, which, I mean, it's shocking. You know, I never really had to relate to anything like that in, in my life. You know, it's just a cultural thing, you know. But anyhow, so um, I guess the... I guess the whole relative and absolute thing, I mean, most of the time it's just like being in space with 
somebody and then um, if you can have real communication, there's no filter there. Yeah. So, so you, you go beyond that. So that's, uh, anyhow, so that's, that's kind of my experience. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel now there's so many sort of fracturings of our society. I, I'm not quite sure why this is happening, but yeah, there are neo-Nazis. Um, my husband's Jewish and um, different groups in the United States that's certainly happening. Um, so I feel in terms of warriorship to be able, we need to acknowledge that um, button being pushed possibly, but also um, how do we, how, how do we maintain our um, basic fundamental humanity in the midst of this? I feel that's the challenge. You know, we used to say living in the challenge, that was level one. Well, now it's really, really challenging. It's really challenging. So, yeah. yeah, but I, I think it's even um, more exasperated by the kind of um, fragmented culture of uh, media, of all the screens and, and all of that. And just the, the whole idea of... Uh, really uh, treasuring humanity it seems to be with all the uh, artificial intelligence and all the, I mean, there's just so many different layers of complications of yeah. things, you know, but to, to, to yeah. somehow yeah. hold on to that thread of humanity seems like really um, important now. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, the humanity went back and back for, you know, that's why I decided I'll just put out there, what's it like to be Asian? You know, it could be for you. What's it like to be Jewish? But what is it like to be African-American? What is it like to be Latino? What it, you know, what is it like? Not just from like what we learn in diversity 101 or something, but what is that lived experience like? And how does it change in different situations? So when you're all with, like people of your same ethnicity, what's that like? I, you know. Yeah, but it, and basically, who is this person? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always that question <laughs> because that person keeps changing. Yeah, that I mean, that's the that's the truth of impermanence. But I feel for skillful means, not not so much to say, okay, I am this person. You know, not so much for the solidity of identity, but more for the communicative, communicative aspect of how do I communicate in different situations? So it becomes an upaya rather than a, like, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm this person kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky though. But I feel that's our mandate. We're supposed to be out in the world being something or the other, you know, warriors, what's that? Mean? <laughs> yeah. It means, I think it means being present before the identity, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. But yeah. 
Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I leave the space for somebody else. Great yeah. to see you. Talk with yeah, you. great to see you. Yeah. Hello, Elaine. Hi. Hi. Nice this to meet you. This is my you. first. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, this is my first time joining this uh, group, and oh, then. Good. Yeah, and for me, I'm a, a native Chinese speaker, and then I'm a first generation of uh, Chinese American here. And then, mm. so, yeah, anyhow, I'm very no. interested in this topic. <laughs> and actually, you also mentioned in Shambhala community, you, you found some, identify some kind of bias to Asian. Uh, I'm not sure what, what, what did you mean about that? Uh, and also, I'm very curious why very few Chinese people really in, in this community. Although I think those Buddhist Dharma teaching originally come from China, from Tibet. But uh, yeah, I'm yeah. very curious why. What, what's the reason for that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I, think, I think because it's, it's, because it's not just the Dharma, it's kind of how things are practiced is very Western. And I mean, I, I'm between second and third generation. So I grew up in America. So I can see that and I can kind of become comfortable with that Western quality of our community, which is everything's in English, kind of very um, conceptual, very well organized. <laughs> and also, um, uh, I don't know, and it doesn't, and it, and it I don't, this goes actually back to what, um, what the previous was saying. Our previous was like, well, we just think it's open to everyone, but actually we do put it together in a certain way and our habitual patterns do behave in a certain way. So we put it together and it's not just Shambhala, but it's many Western Buddhist communities um, have been put together um, in a very American way, which, you know, I could go on and on. I don't, it, it kind of came up to me. I've been working a lot with, um, you might know of Su Chi, this is a Taiwanese um, group, and I'm helping them develop a disaster chaplaincy program. And they have a whole different way of, of working together. They're actually very collaborative. In fact, they're overly collaborative, <laughs> but they're very collaborative. It's not like here, you know, so-and-so develops the curriculum and then we have a meeting about it. It's just not like that. Um, so I feel um, there's just a very, for lack of a better word, I would say more individualistic approach to the Buddha Dharma, which as it's come to the West. And um, I don't know. And, and, and the fact that I, that you came to my talk and like, we like to schmooze with each other, just to talk with each other. Um, that sometimes happens and that does, sometimes doesn't happen in our Shambhala communities, that the schmooze, the, communal aspect is sometimes there and sometimes not. And it's, um, right now it's a little hard, <laughs> but, um, but I like to just like, like 
say hi to everybody. I came back in the Philly. I wanted to see how everybody was doing. Um, you know, that quality isn't always there. It's more about like so-and-so thinks this way about something. This. So it's there's a slightly more conceptual approach to the whole thing, which has its benefits. I don't want to knock it, but it also has a very individualistic kind of orientation. So your question about why are there not more Asian faces in American Buddhism is a question that actually has been asked by many, like um, Chen Ching Han, who wrote um, Be the Refuge. She's in, she's like, um, she's out in California actually at, at um, UCB um, or IBS. She's at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, but she had the same question and she interviewed a number of younger Asian Americans and the, the same comment came up, questions like, why aren't there more Asians in our community? And also, why why is everyone so, so old? <laughs> because that's the other thing that a lot of the American Buddhist communities were formed in the 70s. And so many of, and I'm part of that generation, actually, that baby boomer. And even though I know there's people even on this call that aren't, of the baby boom generation, um, still, you know, it still has that flavor from the baby boom generation. So, um, so, you know, she was had that question as well, and I feel that's a question that just needs to be asked. And why aren't people more comfortable? Why, why aren't there more even people of color in Shambhala? I, I. Um, I can throw out a few ideas, but I, I, you know, I have my own ideas, but, um, you know, uh, that's, that's a question that I think has been in our community for a long time, but welcome. And where are you? Okay. Yeah. I'm located in Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. You're in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interested in end of life care. And then oh, really okay. want to contribute to this field and then use those Buddhist teaching. And uh, I'm very, actually, I have another big question is uh, if those Western Buddhist group community, the, the teaching of those Dhamma, Dhamma yeah, a little bit different from those Chinese Buddhist community, or because I know a lot of Chinese Buddhist practitioners, they try to achieve those highest wisdom, enlightenment. But I, my impression is in Western Buddhist community, then maybe they just more prone to have some distressing or, or to lead a better life. Yeah, more life. psychological, actually. Yeah, it's more psychological. But yeah, Jolly, I if you email me or look on my website, we can have a talk about the yeah. end of life care stuff too. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. The. Um, there's as many kinds of Buddhism as there are Christianity, actually, and the East Asian Buddhism is different than Tibetan Buddhism, certainly. But also working with the uh, East Asians that I know 
from Suchi, um, they are very much like we could become bodhisattvas. They're just like going for, uh, yeah, they're just going for that. It's not about psychological stress reduction or anything like that. Although they might cause stress to each other in doing that. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's upsides and downsides. <laughs> Uh, Jude, you should be able to. Okay. Hi, Lane. Hi, Jude. <laughs> <laughs> um, you sort of touched on this, but I, I'll just say that. Um, well, one, yeah, so the, an article that really kind of opens up a whole thing for me was um, We've Been Here All Along, which is this article which really talks about the arrogance of Western convert Buddhists in terms of the traditional Buddhist cultures that are in this country. So it's like, we, we know how it should be. We've discovered the true Buddhism. You know, it's like this. And what you do is blah, blah, blah. Superstitious. Superstitious, ritualistic, blah, you know, all that. And when I read that, I was like, it was one of those moments where you realize your own, your own biases that are completely unexamined. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. It's like, why do we have no relationships with the other Buddhist communities in the city of Philadelphia, of which there are many that are cultural, you know, um, so I'm just curious. We're we're curious. I'm curious what you, if you have. Well, I feel that, yeah. I feel that what that dynamic you described, I encountered at Naropa actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very conceptual, but also I feel like it. This is my take. It took like um, from <clears throat> Buddhism to go from India to China, took a couple hundred years, like in the three or four hundreds. So we're about a hundred years in to Buddhism coming to the West. Um, and we have the internet and everything so we can translate all the words, the ideas, but it hasn't gone into the felt sense of culture at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was interesting what Jali said about um, the psychological. So we've taken it into our culture psychologically. Mm -hmm. But the actual um, intention of Buddhism, like bodhicitta, like being friendly to the other Buddhist groups in Philadelphia. Yeah. You know, um, so it, I feel, you know, Shambhala and maybe other, I mean, I can only speak for Shambhala. I don't know that many. But, you know, we, we have a good, we've learned the Dharma conceptually very well, actually. Um, or maybe not, but there's been a lot of books translated. <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot translated, a lot, but um, it hasn't. It has to go to the second step of um, sort of permeating, like like water into soil, going into the culture. Well, the the risk sort of is that what we've done is translated into our psychological culture. Yeah, it's become That's like the first pass. Yeah, right, but that it could stop there because that's the dominant culture well and it so won't it's, stop there <laughs> i hope not <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> That's just interesting though. The, the, I think it's just a good reminder for people. Of, yeah. Um, yeah. We are just beginning to develop this. We don't have all the answers. Yeah. Um, yeah. We mistake thinking that somehow we, we are doing it right and others are doing it wrong. I think that's a really, you know, that's just like, yeah, basic, basic stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to catch up with Lynn, who, oh, okay. from, my, from, yeah. my, from my internal oppression group. Thank you, Elaine. Okay. Uh, so, Elaine, thank you so much for, yeah, being here with us today. And, uh, yeah, look forward for more. And I would like to end the session with uh, reading um, a short quote that Elaine shared uh, with us that um, would like for you to just take it for your week and contemplate about that. It's actually from the book from Chen Ching Han's Be, Be, Be the Refuge. So if you allow me, I'll just uh, read the quote that Elaine shared with us. I feel intimidated in that I don't belong in conversations already dominated by Caucasian or primarily English-speaking contributors. I don't want to be the token other or have to symbolize a whole group of people. It's really true that cultural differences can be uncomfortable and cross-cultural cross conversations can be more awkward, conflictual, and prone to misunderstanding compared to conversations with people in the same culture or language group. It takes a great deal of courage, patience, and compassion to participate in conversations outside of one's cultural comfort zone. So thank you for sharing that with us, Elaine, and thank you for offering you. this presentation. And uh, next week, we have Melanie Klein uh, leading us in some Maitri Bhavana practice. So stay tuned for that. Uh, at this point, so official thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast. We hope you can join us again soon. You can find out more about upcoming live Shambhala Sunday gatherings and our podcast at shambhalaonline.org forward slash Sunday dash gatherings forward slash.